Well, we're back in John again this morning. Praise the Lord. We'll be at John chapter 13. That's on page 1069. John chapter 13. A very familiar passage. And very unique that John captures it for us. What a blessing. John 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now. But afterward, you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Well, dear congregation, Jesus washing the disciples' feet is a well-known passage of Scripture, as I said already, and rightfully so, because it's a beautiful picture of Christ's humility and his ministry, and it's rich with meaning. But as many things, many times, we're tempted to rush past the teaching and go right to the command at the end to wash one another's feet. And of course, the problem with that is if we don't understand what the teaching is, what the meaning is, then we'll misapply it. I've grown up in the Dutch Reformed Church, and I've never seen anyone else wash someone's feet. And so either we're doing something really wrong, or this is not literal. Of course, we know that this is not literal. But then the question becomes, what does it mean to wash one another's feet? Are we doing that? Does it mean to pay each other's bills or to help each other with the house chores? 
Well, today we want to look primarily at what Jesus is teaching in the lesson when he washes the disciples' feet. That'll be our main focus. In other words, we'll try to answer the question when Jesus says to them, and he asks them, do you understand what I have done to you? And I just want to be clear here, if I haven't already this morning, that this is about the love of God. Christ isn't just taking down a small piece of God's love to us as if it's pure water in a thimble, but rather taking us, unifying us to the fullness of God's love in heaven. And that's what Christ is teaching in this act. And from that, once we understand it, then we can know better how to apply it to our lives. But the bulk of the message this morning is to understand the core of that lesson. And so we'll be looking at this in two points. Point one, the occasion for this lesson. And point two, the meaning of this lesson. The lesson, of course, is that Jesus teaches his disciples he is the way to the Father's love. And so we'll look first at the occasion for the lesson. Well, if you've been following along with us, if you've been able to be here these past couple weeks, months, we've been going through the book of John. And up to this point, we've gone through what they say. They really divide the book into two books, scholars of John. 1 through 11, they call the book of signs, which is what we've been looking at. And essentially, Christ is proclaiming to the world and showing to the world through acts of miracles and healings and teachings that he is the Son of God. And he does that consistently. He grows um, the, the people that he's teaching. And at the same time, they also reject him more and more. Well, that's the first half of the book. And the second half of the book, they call the book of glory. And that's starting here at verse chapter 13. And that is, of course, pointing to the glory of his ministry ending on the cross. Well, last week, we looked at Lazarus in chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus, and that miracle was so undeniable and so powerful that people and herds were believing in Jesus. And so now the Jews, there's no more talk for them about killing Jesus. No, they're going to do it now, really. No talk, just action. After all, the whole world is going after him. That's what they said. And so now, and really the book hinges on that. And so I want to bring to you a parable that Christ teaches about what, what's happening with the Jews. What, what, from their perspective, what are they seeing? Why are they trying to kill Christ? And in Mark 12, Christ gives us the parable of the tenants in the vineyard. Maybe you're familiar with this, but this is where there's the owner of the vineyard, and he sets tenants up for, on his vineyard, and he leaves. And then over time, he sends messengers to come collect from the fruit of the vineyard and to bring it back to him. But instead of giving them fruit... They rather beat the messengers and send them away. He keeps sending messengers, and eventually they beat and kill them. So he sends a son, saying, surely they'll listen to them, to him. But when they see the son approach the vineyard, they're not thinking that this is the son, and so we need to give him the fruit now. Rather, they're seeing and they're thinking, well, the son, he's the one who owns, will own all this. This is all of his inheritance. So if we kill him, then we'll get all of it. And so that's what they do. Well, of course, Jesus is the son, and the father is the owner of the vineyard, and the leaders of the Jews are the tenants that kill the messengers in Christ. But what's the fruit? Well, the fruit of the people, when they see the whole world is going after him. And so here, you can hear, you can, you can see their desperation, right? The whole world is going after him. And so there's a transition that takes place in John chapter 12, which is in between where we were last week and this week, to the second half of the gospel account. And what's interesting is that the book of signs, the first half, 1 through 11, really covers Christ's ministry three years in only 11 chapters. So he just gives us tiny little slices. 
But now, as we move to what they call the Book of Glory, and today we're going to talk just about a short section, but it really is representative of the next five chapters. And that's just a couple hours. So you can see the, the focus that John has. And in a sense, he's pulling back a curtain for us, letting us see this, this time with Christ and his, his disciples. And it is a tough night because Christ is, it's, some people call it the farewell discourse, his last teaching to them. It's hard for them to know that Christ was going to be going away. But at the same time, it's a night filled with love, the love of God. And in fact, before we even jump into the upper room with the disciples, John gives us a context for the night at verse 1, where it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is a very interesting statement by John. In summary, he's basically telling us that where Christ's mind is at, well, he knows that his ministry is coming to an end. He knows his ministry is coming to an end. It's, it's as if, um, you know, for, for a woman who's expecting a baby and she knows her, her due date is coming, and if you have been pregnant, of course, you know that those last couple of weeks are really difficult. Maybe, let's say, you're looking for the date August 5th. You know, you're saying, it's August 5th, it's coming soon. But those last, every day becomes difficult as you're waiting. And then eventually maybe you go to the grocery store and you buy milk or you, you pull milk out of your refrigerator and you see the, the, the date on the milk. And it's past your due date, right? And the reality is there now. Like it's almost done. It's almost here. And that could be for anything. You know, you're graduating, whatever you're doing, that's really hard. And you see some sort of a date on bread or something and it really sets in. This is, this is done. It's coming to completion. That's what John is drawing our attention to in Christ's mind. It's obviously his cross is still ahead of him, but in his mind it's completed. And so, what is he thinking about? Well, he could be focused on his father, where he's going. After all, he'll, share with, he'll be with him again in glory. He'll rejoice, and he'll be with him soon. His work is almost done. What great joy there is ahead of him. If we take the picture again of, of a woman who's pregnant, you know, when the baby comes, does she want to think about her pregnancy anymore? Is that something that she wants to remember, or certainly not, not the delivery in Christ, too, his ministry, a man of sorrows, has been difficult for him. It's been suffering for him. And is he thinking, well, I don't want to ever think about that ever again, or anything having to do with that? No, he's not thinking that. John tells us what he's thinking about, that he's thinking about his disciples. Of all that he could be thinking about, he's thinking about those that he's, he's leaving behind in this world, those he loved, it says, and cared for during his ministry. He would soon leave them, but only in body, which is hard for us. That's important to us, the body, if the body's not there, right? But he's saying only in body, for he loved them to the end. And the Greek word here, telos, it means end. That's a good translation. But it also could mean perfection or completion, and often does. The very mind of Jesus, he's not thinking of this bad memory that he wants to get rid of. No, he loved his own to the end. He loved his own perfectly and completely. And Jesus all night is going to be drawing the disciples' eyes to him, He's going to be teaching them, and to start the teaching, in fact, as I was going through this, I caught myself often calling this a sign. It's not one of the signs of Christ, not one of the great signs anyway, one of the seven signs, surely, but it's very similar to the signs and the fact that he's doing something that has a meaning, right? We, we said already we're not supposed to literally wash each other's feet, not that that's bad, but that's not what he's commanding us. He is a teaching. So these five chapters, if you have time this week to read them, that would be good, You'll see what he's, what he's teaching, but now he's going to illustrate something for them. And how does he do that? By, by washing their feet. 
And he's, what he's trying to tell them basically is, though I'm leaving a body, I'm not really leaving you. And this illustration of the foot washing is one that they're going to remember for the rest of their lives. And so here, by verse 4, we're told the mind of Jesus, John sets us up for that, that is, he loves them to the end. We're also told the mind of Judas as well, which is interesting because a lot of this teaching is about abiding in him, being in him. And so we have one who has been with him his whole ministry, but is not abiding in him. So John tells us about that, but then he brings us into the upper room with them. And the, the disciples have followed Jesus here to this large upper room. And if you remember from last week, we talked about possibly where their mind would be at. I know very clearly where their mind was at. What were they thinking about Judea, going into Judea? Do you remember what Doubting Thomas said? He said, well, let's go and die with him too. And we can't be hard on them because the Jews were after them to kill him, Christ. And Lazarus too, it said, to kill Lazarus. So for them, this is a somber meal. When they go up, the food is prepared already. And there's no servant there to wash their feet, which would be customary because they didn't have, without getting into a lot of detail, I mean, they didn't have sewage systems like we have today. So roads, walking around, your feet would get very dirty. Servants would wash their feet. There was no servant there, so they just needed to eat. And I think this could be similar if you've ever had the water in your house stop working and you can't take showers for a couple of days or whatever it may be, but you know, you're outside, you're working, you're sweating, and now you want to relax that night and go to sleep, but you, don't, you can't take a shower. It's quite uncomfortable. Well, here, that's a similar situation for the disciples. Their feet are really disgusting. They can't wash them. They're not going to wash each other's feet. We'll talk about that in just a second. So they recline at these tables, or low tables. That was normal. They would pray, of course, and supper begins. Well, then Jesus gets up from the meal. He moves his outer garments, says, takes a towel, he wraps it around his waist. He walks to the washstand, takes a large basin, and fills it with water. At this point, the disciples would know what's going to happen here. And in their culture, they would be shocked. Because for someone to wash someone else's feet was not a small thing. In fact, it would be inappropriate for equals or peers to wash one another's feet. That's one of the reasons why the disciples weren't quickly trying to wash each other's feet. And now here, well, even actually servants. For servants, that was something that only the lowest servants would do. And now Jesus, their teacher and their Lord, as he says, is going to wash their feet. He who has the very words of life, as they say, Peter said. He who had just beat back death and resurrected Lazarus, as we saw last week. They also just saw his temple cleansing. The temple was massive. It was 30 or so soccer fields large, and he cleansed that. They've seen the power and the majesty and the glory of Christ. And so here he is, before they know it, slipping off the sandals of one of the disciples who was closest, washing their feet in the cold water and drying with the towel. None of them, of course, are bold enough to ask or object. But I can tell you that this would be very shocking and embarrassing in their culture. Well, that is until we come to Peter. We love Peter, right? You can imagine... For them, they would be hoping, just waiting for Peter, right, to speak on behalf of all of them. This is one of the times where Peter would, would, would represent them well in their minds. They're thinking, surely he'll say what we're all thinking. And he does just that. What does he say? Lord, do you wash my feet? And that is in a respectful way to say, what are you doing? Well, Jesus is going to go on to answer that question. That's going to be our second point tonight, this morning. <laughs> so we're going to go to number two, the meaning of this lesson on the original language here, um, Peter's question, it it's very specifically draws out the pronouns. 
but saying, Lord, do you wash my feet? So Peter is confused, as we just said. You know, of all the illustrations that Christ could have used in this teaching for this night, he chooses this, something that's very uncomfortable for them. Well, at this point, Peter is holding back. He's being kind. He's being patient, you know. What are you doing, Lord? What does Jesus say in verse 7? What I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. That's something I've thought about this week as as well. You know, when, when do you think Peter and the other disciples really understood the meaning of the sign? They'd understand it more in just a minute as, they, as Christ would teach, but then they'd understand it more and more throughout their whole lives. They would surely never forget this. That night, the last night with Jesus before his cross, this is how they ministered. What were they thinking at the time? Maybe they're offended, maybe they're scared, I don't know, but that would change over time in their life. Well, as I said, Peter was holding back at first, asking him, Lord, what are you doing? And no longer, right? He says, you'll never wash my feet. The idea of his Lord... Stooping to such a low state on his behalf was too much for Peter to bear, too much for him to see, for him to feel him touching his feet and all that that would represent to him, all that that it would signify. No, that was too humiliating for Jesus, that's what Peter thought. In fact, John the Baptist, too, would probably be in the situation if he were there because he said that he was not even worthy to loose the sandals of Jesus. And he's referring to the same thing when he's talking about loosing the sandals. That's washing his feet. And here, Jesus is going to loose the sandals of Peter and wash his feet. Well, Peter doesn't understand what's going on, and he doesn't want to wait to understand. That's what Christ is saying, be patient and wait. So he refuses his Lord. And Jesus Jesus then explains, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And there it is, Peter's thinking, I get it now. He should have just said this from the beginning. He gets the doctrine of it, right? He thinks it represents a ceremonial washing. And so then what does he say? Right? He tries to take control. He says, well, if that's the case, Jesus, then wash all of me. Don't just wash my feet. No, Peter needs to help Jesus, right? Jesus is being too soft here. His illustration could be stronger. It could be better. You know, Peter, just like we have the same issue, oftentimes we think, well, the Lord has, has called me, so even the weak sides of me, you know, that's okay. We won't worry about that. We'll just, we'll just do what comes natural. And so Peter, too, is saying, I'm going to say what needs to be said, just like he's going to help Jesus later in the same way when he chops off the soldier's ear. He's basically saying, Jesus, your ways are not enough. It's not enough. Wash all of me. Well, Peter's really relying on himself here, his own understanding. And if you look at verse 37, we see that again. Peter's relying on himself because he says to Jesus, I'll die for you, Jesus. And Christ says, well, in your own power, you would die for me. No, it has to be in Christ's power that he would die for Peter. And Peter, in your own power, you won't die for me. You'll deny me. And not only will you deny me, you will deny me to the uttermost. And even past that, you would deny me again, three times. And don't we do this as well, just like Peter, to rely on our own understanding? Here, in my mind, it's like he, he wants to understand and he puts it in some kind of a clear doctrine, you know. The Lord asks us, he works mysteriously in our lives, doesn't he? And we have to be patient as we wait to see how he's working. Even in something like baptism, for example, we want to make things clear cut. It has to be easy to understand. It has to be something that we know now. Something we can put in a sentence. We can put in a brochure. 
That can be a, a, a danger for theologians. You see that sometimes. We want to we make it clear-cut. And when we do that, that's a lot of times where heresies um, form. And I mentioned baptism just a moment ago. We want to think, you know, when that water hits our child's head, therefore, you know, they will be saved no matter what happens in their life, no matter what they do if they walk away to the Lord. That water is such. That's easy for us to understand. But for baptism, God is drawing our eyes to him, right? He's having us wait on him to know that it's in his love, which is far greater than just some water. But we see that a little bit in Peter, for sure. I think he's trying to understand what Christ is. He doesn't want to wait on Christ's teaching. He just wants it to be simple. And here, Christ is about to explain what he's doing. And it's about really abiding in him continually. So let's look at verse 10. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed, and this can be a little confusing at first, we'll go through it, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Well, this, when he's talking about being clean, we, we again know that he's speaking to something spiritual, a different truth. And so if you look at verse, uh, chapter 15, you might want to keep your finger there. Um, chapter 15, verse 3, he explains what he means by being clean. And in fact, chapter 15 is really the core of the teaching of this washing. 15, verse 3, he says, Already you are clean. Why? Because of the word that I have spoken to you. And if you can remember, Peter, at the end of chapter 6, gave a profession of faith in Christ, and he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And what did the word do for them? It says, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So here when he's saying you're clean because of the word I've spoken, he's saying that they're believers, that they're already believers. This, this is not to point to justification as much like a one-time action to believe in Christ as, as much as to say, no, you must abide in me always. I'm leaving. I'm going to the Father and body. You're going to remain back, but you're not the world's. You belong to me. They would always be his to the end because he loved them to the end. The disciples would remain in the world. They would walk in it. They would be dirtied by it just as their feet were dirtied by the ground that they walked on. But they would never be a part of the world. They would rather be a part of Jesus. He wanted to show them that though they may not see him or hear him, they would still be his and would need him to wash them continually, not to justify them again because their whole body was already clean, as he said, but that their old natures, the world and the devil, would still soil them, and so they would always need to be unified to Jesus and to be cleansed entirely from the world and the part of them that comes into contact with it. And so here, isn't, aren't the feet a perfect representation of that deeper truth? And we just go back to Peter for a second. Peter, who doesn't want to wait on Christ, he wants to rely on himself because he perfectly represents us in that way. Jesus here is saying, abide in me always. I'm a man, and women, of course. <laughs> we don't like that. We don't like to trust. If someone says, just trust me, that's, that's hard for us, isn't it? No, we like to trust in our reason. Tell me why, and then I'll trust. And that's what happened, of course, in Eden. Well, in chapter 21 of John, Jesus, after Peter has denied him three times, allows him three times to make a profession of faith, but more than that, he's teaching him. He says, Peter, do you love me? 
Do you love me? And then what does he say? Well, then feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed them. Do you love me? Yes, feed them. So he's showing them that it's a unification to Christ. It's out of Christ's love, his love for him, and that relationship that he can then feed his sheep. Because it's not going to be easy to feed the sheep. Peter's not going to be able to get that from himself. But rather his relationship with Jesus. How do you love one another? For us, it's easy to always think about it coming from within ourselves, as if we have some sort of source of a well of good and strength, you know. But a lot of times, if we're honest, we know that we're, when we love someone else, we're doing it for some sort of benefit for ourselves, brownie points, right? Well, here in John 21, I should say, in John 21, Jesus is saying to Peter, to love my sheep, to care for them, you will do it because you love me. You will abide in me, and everything you do will come out of that. And as I mentioned a minute ago, chapter 15, verse 3, I want to read a little bit more of that because, again, like I said, this whole section that I am the true vine, is the teaching of this action. So let's, I'm going to read, starting at 3 again. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And then what does it say? Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Jesus is saying you must continue to abide in me, I'm leaving in body, but you must continue in me. And then actually, if you skip down to verse 9, he explains what does it mean to abide in him. That can be kind of broad language. Verse 9 of 15, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And then here it is, abide in my love. And this is what the whole sign was about. Again, Jesus was leaving, the disciples were staying, but they were always going to be his. And they were not to abide in themselves and in their own strength, but always in the love of God. And if I point back, actually, I said this at the beginning, this passage is all about the love of God. These five chapters, full communion with the love of God, all of its power. It's not so much that, that God is bringing down to a world, a desert world, a swimming pool of pure water. That, and that swimming pool of pure water is so glorious and so wonderful to us because we have nothing here. It's not so much that as, as it is that God is bringing us up to him and unifying with him as if bringing us to a planet of, of, of water, and it's surrounding us on every side. And that's the meaning of the sign, to be loved by God and to stay in unity with him. Well, after the meeting, then he commands us to do the same thing, to wash one another's feet. He says he has shown us an example, an example of what, but his love for us. And what is he commanding them to do? Well, he clarifies that throughout all these five chapters. But even if you look just a couple of verses at verse 34 in chapter 13, just a couple of verses ahead of where we are, what does he say? Very clearly, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And I, I, I just think it's, you know, why does he say a new commandment? Because in a lot of ways, it's not new, Right? But it's new because of the clarity in which he shows us the love of God, the clarity in which the commandment comes to us, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Can you do that? Can you love a neighbor? Can you love anybody? Can you, can you love an enemy as Christ has loved you? We can't. So even and especially in that, we know we have to go to him, right? Well, here he's saying for us to wash each other's feet, to love as he loved us, to love others to pull from that deep well of God and not from ourselves. 
If you're taking notes, maybe you can jot down Proverbs chapter 8. It's the proverb on the wisdom of God, which is a personification of Jesus. Just to, to illustrate the love that we're being pulled into, in that chapter, it's talk, it talks about how wisdom was with God in the beginning. This is Jesus. At the creation, when he was creating the mountains and the seas and the oceans, every day he was with God, and he, they glorified in one another, and they loved one another, the love of the Father to the Son, and that's the very love that Jesus pulls us into. Well, I said that John pulls, us, pulls back a curtain and lets us come into this room with them, right? And there's another curtain that he pulls back, and this is John chapter 17, where he now, by the Spirit, writes about a prayer that Christ gives. And I want to read from that in 1722. It's almost as if we've gone into the Holy of Holies at this point to see and to hear a prayer of Christ to the Father. But this illustrates what I've been saying. This is at 22, 1722. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I mean, that statement alone, the power of it, that by, by our love for one another, the love of God, people would be able to look at us and know, what does he say? That you sent me, that they would know that this not earthly love or worldly love, it's an alien love outside of man. And then when you talk to them about the Father sending the Son to die for us, it will make, it will make sense to them because they'll know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me to pull us to experience the very love of the Father for the Son. And it really is a jaw-dropping truth. And isn't this the, the best evangelism plan, the ultimate evangelism plan to spread his word to others? And of course, it is the ultimate evangelism plan because it's God's evangelism plan. He ordained it, and he equips us to do it, and he commands us to do it and gives us the ability to obey it. Well, just in conclusion, we're looking at the love of God. Jesus wants to show that to them in an an illustration, an illustration that they'll remember for the rest of their life. They'll remember Jesus' last night with them before the cross. They'll remember that he loved them to the end. And he showed it by washing their feet. At first, it was humiliating. They thought it was humiliating for Christ. And Jesus says, you don't yet understand, but soon you will. And they would later, wouldn't they? Because what is this pointing to? An act of humiliation by Christ on behalf of his disciples to cleanse them. The cross, right? Yes, they would understand later when they saw his cross. But many also, many others would see his cross, and they would see the humiliation of Jesus on the cross, but they wouldn't see his love in it. They'd be disgusted by it. Many ridiculed him because of it. The leaders of the Pharisees said to him, come down. If you're God, come down, and then we'll believe. You know, they looked at him and said, God wouldn't do this, something this humiliating. But of course, brothers and sisters, we know that this humiliation was God's greatest glory, Yes, they looked at him on the cross and they said, how could God do that? But that night, there was someone in the room, his feet were washed too, and he probably thought the same thing. That's Judas. Jesus washed his feet. Jesus 
saw him and saw that humiliating action of Jesus, did he understand it? No. But it's the cross that shows us the greatness of God's love and in his lowness that he comes for us. Yes, this passage is about nothing else but the love of God. That Jesus came ultimately not just to bring his love down to us, like I said, but to unite us fully to him and receive the love of God fully and completely. And then, after that, to be united to one another in the very love of the Father for the Son, whereby the world will see us and know that, our, that the, that love is an alien love from God. It must be so powerful that they would know that the Father did in fact send his Son into the world to save it. What power and richness we were given through our Lord and Savior. And I'd just like to read the first stanza of the deep, deep love of Jesus that we just read, saying, I'll just read that really quick in closing. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me, underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love, leading onward, leading homeward, to thy glorious rest above. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you'd forgive us for wanting to boil everything down to just actions that we can do. Just tell us one plus one is two. But Lord, we thank you for having the opportunity to wait on you to wait on your, to understand, have a better understanding through our lives and to see how you work. And that we can say here, truly you love us. And that we could see that you sent your son, you held nothing back from us. And we give you thanks. We pray, Lord, that we would be able to then take this love, being so unified in it, to show it to one another that your name would be glorified and that others would see it and know that you sent your son for us. We pray all this in his name. Amen.